Happy New Year, church. It is a joy and privilege to be bringing you God's word on the very first day of the very first 2023. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. But before we go to the word, let's ask God for help to understand his word. So let's pray one more time. Uh, Lord of glory, we thank you for the privilege of not only making it to a new year, but the opportunity to gather with your people around your word on the very first day of the year. As we do so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, uh, Lord, you would help us to understand you rightly, uh, to be affected and changed by your word. Uh, be exalted, O oh God, as we consider your greatness, uh, your justice, and your faithfulness to us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On January 1st, uh, 2021, uh, Chelsea, myself, and our two boys packed up our minivan to the brim, uh, backed out of her parents' driveway, and waved goodbye. Uh, we headed south uh, to help shepherd uh, the saints of Oakhurst Baptist Church. Uh, prior to my family and I moving here to Charlotte, uh, exactly two years ago to this very day, uh, we lived in our nation's capital, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, an extremely common sight for us were things like the White House uh, and the Capitol building. Uh, Lincoln and Jefferson were such staples in our lives that that's exactly how we referred to them. Uh, by the way, I'm talking about monuments, Lincoln and Jefferson monument. Uh, the Smithsonian Museums uh, were more or less playgrounds for my children. Uh, yet, year after year, uh, Washington, D.C., attracts thousands, if not millions, of tourists who travel from all over the world to, to see these monuments, uh, to walk through these museums, to take pictures uh, in front of uh, the White House. These symbols of the most powerful nation in the world, uh, that people travel thousands of miles to see, uh, we, quite honestly, would barely notice. Why is that? Well, because uh, living there for so long, uh, seven years for myself and, and 30 years for Chelsea, uh, caused us to become so familiar with these, these icons, uh, maybe even too familiar, you could say, uh, with these icons. You see, the reality is, is these monuments and these buildings and these museums are actually really, really beautiful. Uh, they're important. Uh, they're meaningful. Uh, the level of architectural beauty and art that you can find all around the city of D.C. is astounding, uh, even in some of the neighborhoods. Uh, but our familiarity had dulled our senses. Uh, the beauty of the city was in many ways uh, lost on us. Unfortunately, something similar uh, can happen among well-meaning Christians also. Uh, a dulling of senses a slow blurring of the beauty of God and his word. Uh, consider some of the common words that we used among one another. Grace, faith, uh, sovereignty, repentance, forgiveness. We sing these words. We, we read these words. We pray these words. We, we use them regularly in conversation with one another. And y'all, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. These are words that reach their fullest meaning as they pertain to God. 
But even if the meaning of words don't change, we do. Uh, with familiarity, even these words can become dull to us. So consider with me the word holiness. Holiness. Uh, we began this service by singing holy, holy, holy. Uh, we use this word often in our prayers. Uh, it's often in our scripture readings as well. It's repeated in our passage. You'll see uh, Psalm 99 multiple times. But when we say that God is holy, do we really understand what we're saying? Have we become too familiar with this attribute of God? So what I'd like for us to do this morning is to slow down to slow down, to take a second look, to, to reevaluate, in a sense to become unfamiliar with the holiness of God for the purposes of seeing it afresh, with new eyes, uh, so that we individually and as a church would be even more amazed at the magnitude of mercy and grace that has been extended to us in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 99. Psalm 99, it's on page 500 in your pew Bibles, page 500 in your pew Bibles. And as is always the case, if you do not have a physical copy of God's word, uh, please do take that one as a gift from us to you. We would want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's word on your own for the remainder of this year and beyond. While you turn there, just a little bit of context for Psalm 99. Uh, Psalm 99 is the seventh of the royal or kingship psalms. We see others in chapter 47, chapter 93, verse chapter 95 to 99 are other examples of royal psalms. And through the poetic imagery and repetition in these hymn lyrics, it portrays for us how holy and exalted God is. And as a response to this holiness, the great reverence that we owe him because of his personal character and positional reign. Friends, it's a psalm meant to heighten our senses and grow our understanding of God in whom we live and breathe and have our being. So with that in mind, our passage for this morning, Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Holy is he. What does the psalmist mean when he uses the word holy to describe God? 
Let's go ahead and just define our terms to get started. Holiness can be defined as separate, uh, set apart, uh, totally different. Uh, Holiness has been described as the attribute of God that makes him holy, that's with a W, holy other, uh, not like us. It emphasizes, it's a word that emphasizes the distance between God and man. Uh, Morally speaking, God alone is pure and perfect, and we are depraved and polluted. Uh, Existentially speaking, he is infinite, and we are finite. He is eternal, and we are mortal. Uh, Now, the previous psalm, Psalm 98, which Pastor Tim preached to us about two weeks ago, assures us that this, this gulf, this chasm between God and man indeed has been bridged in Jesus Christ. Uh, but Psalm 99 reminds us that it was God who built that bridge. He came down to dwell among us. Thus the repeated cry, holy is he, not us. This repeated exclamation, it's a reminder that we should never take for granted the holiness and grace of God. And I pray that our time together would be just that, a reminder that God's holiness is nothing to be trifled with. Uh, And to understand it more clearly is to be amazed at the grace that he continues to extend to us in Christ Jesus. And that's despite our lack of holiness. So with that context and definition in mind, for those who are taking notes, this is our main idea for this morning. The holiness of the Lord sets him apart, uh, but the faithfulness of the Lord draws him near. The holiness of the Lord sets him apart, uh, but the faithfulness of the Lord draws him near. And we'll consider this main idea through two lenses. Uh, Verses 1 to 5, holiness enthroned. Uh, Holiness enthroned. And then the remainder of the passage, verses 6 to 9, Holiness encountered. Uh, Holiness encountered. So beginning with that idea of holiness enthroned that we see in verses 1 through 5. But we're going to start by looking at verses 1 to 3 in particular, where we see the Lord's holiness on display, particularly in his greatness. The Lord's holiness on display in his greatness. Uh, These first five verses are meant to be a stunning depiction of the majesty of God's kingship. Uh, Just like Psalm 97, which I preached a few months ago, this psalm also begins with a cause for praise, uh, followed by a call to praise the Lord. Verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, reigns. This this phrase is, it's basically the thesis to the entire psalm. So if you want to get the meaning, there it is, front and center at the very uh, beginning. And the remaining eight and a half verses flow out of this spiritual reality that Yahweh is king. And similar to the structure of this psalm, our lives as followers of Jesus should be the same. All that we do, all that we say, the decisions that we make, the places that we go should flow out of this reality that Yahweh is king. The Lord reigns. The fact that the God who loves us and sent his son to die for us is sitting on the throne of the universe should, should affect every aspect 
of our lives. Some examples. The Lord sitting on the throne of your life, for those who are single, not only determines who you date, but even when you date. The Lord sitting on the throne of your life affects not only what you do for work, but where you work. The Lord sitting on the throne of your life impacts not only what you say, but even how you say it. The Lord sitting on the throne of your life not only means that you forgive others when they wrong you, but even how quickly you forgive others when they wrong you. The Lord sitting on the throne of your life affects your view of everything, children, gender, sexuality, alcohol, marriage, money, your time. Christian, the fact that the Lord reigns affects every moment of every inch of your life. As we begin 2023, come what may, take comfort in this truth, the Lord reigns. The remainder of verses 1 and 2 in particular put on display the greatness of the Lord's reign. You see right there, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. The Lord is great in Zion. A throne is meant for a king. It represents a position, a seat of authority and power. Uh, often thrones are elaborate displays. They're, they're stunning on their own. So that everyone knows, even if the seat happens to be empty at the moment that you're looking at it, that place, that place belongs to a king. Uh, the throne depicted here in Psalm 99 is a throne upon or, or between the cherubim. Uh, cherubim are, are winged angelic beings that we see all throughout the Old Testament as well as in the book of Revelation. Uh, they are servants of the Lord. They exist for the purpose of, of magnifying the Lord in his holiness and power. Uh, they served as visible reminders of the majesty and glory of God and his abiding presence with his people. So then, if that's the case, what is the significance of the Lord being enthroned between the cherubim? Well, we find it in Exodus 25, the description of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, these golden images of, of cherubim were placed on either side of the mercy seat, which was at the top of the Ark. Uh, and it was at the mercy seat where the presence of the Lord dwelled. These golden images, these mighty angelic beings were here to, to highlight the Lord's mercy, to, to highlight the Lord's greatness. Uh, we see another declaration of the Lord's greatness in verse 2. Uh, this time, the greatness depicted in Zion. Zion being the company of those who love the Lord, uh, his covenant people. And in the Old Testament, this would have been depicting Israel, talking about Israel. In other words, the Lord is great among those whom he called his own, uh, those whom he set his affections upon, uh, not because, as Deuteronomy 7 tells us, they were numerous or, or a great nation, but because the Lord loved them and is faithful to the promises that he made to their forefathers. Again, all of this imagery is meant to depict the greatness of the Lord. But like the first time that you see the Grand Canyon, or maybe Michael Jordan play basketball. That which is truly great, it elicits a response. 
it elicits a response, awe, reverence, a holy fear. We see these responses to the Lord's great reign in verses 1 and 2 as well. The peoples or the nations, they, they tremble. The earth, it quakes. To tremble and to quake. That's on purpose. Those are physical responses. The Lord in his strength and might is is so powerful that even the earth itself must must submit to his greatness. And not only the earth, but all of its inhabitants. Earlier we mentioned Zion being God's covenant people. But the reality is that the Lord, his great and holy reign, it extends even past his chosen people, right? He, He is the creator of all things, therefore all of creation must bow and worship him. Nothing exists that God has not created. Therefore, no one is exempt from the command to worship him. The church family, God is holy. He is not like us. The nations do not tremble at our presence. The ground that we stand on does not give way at our word. God's Greatness highlights God's holiness. He is holy other. He's in a category of his own, deserving of all admiration, deserving of all worship. But not only does the psalmist help us to understand the Lord's holiness via his greatness, but the Lord's holiness is also on display via his his justice that we see in verse 4. His holiness is seen in his justice. Uh, This king enthroned between the cherubim is a king that loves justice, establishes equity, and executes righteousness. All of God's actions flow from his character. All of God's actions flow from his character. The Lord loves justice because he is completely just. Uh, Friends, God does what he is. Therefore, uh, in his holiness, he is most concerned with what is right. Uh, You could even say God's justice, it finds its origins, its beginnings in his holiness. Uh, We saw this similar idea, again, back in Psalm 97, verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Uh, This is just another way of saying that justice and righteousness characterize the Lord's reign. Uh, Church family, we praise God for his integrity, uh, for his moral uprightness. Uh, As those who live for his glory, we don't have to worry that somehow the guilty will go unpunished or that somehow wrongs will not be made right. Uh, Yahweh has been clear. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will indeed wipe away every tear of the eye. And part of how he will do that is by executing and enacting his justice on behalf of his people. In this life or the next. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. 
Uh, but what good is a just king who has no power to carry out that justice? Well, friends, the psalmist in our psalm this morning makes clear that this king is also a mighty king. Uh, the first sentence of verse 4 can literally be translated, the might of the king loves justice. Uh, saints, our God is able. He is able. Uh, the same justice that he demands is the same justice that he delivers. Don't forget that. Uh, a, a reference for you, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8, for I, the Lord, very plainly, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Uh, verse 4, it ends with a subtle allusion uh, to Jacob. Having just finished our study through the book of Genesis, we should be very familiar with the life of Jacob, as well as the children of Israel. The original audience also would have been very familiar as well. And a common theme in Jacob's life was the Lord establishing equity and executing justice on his behalf, even despite him at times. So this brief reference, it would have served as a familiar example, a reminder that indeed this mighty king loves justice. To see God rightly, for who he truly is, uh, it's like stepping into the sun's rays. Uh, to be in the sun for any extended period of time is to be changed by the sun in some way. Uh, some of us get tan. If you're like me, you immediately begin to start sweat, sweating. Right? Plants grow. Ice melts. We're able to see where we're going if it happens to be dark. The whole earth and all that it is on it responds to the sun's presence. Well, friends, such as the case when a Christian comes to truly understand the holiness of God. Uh, to encounter God's holiness is to be changed. Which brings us to point number two. Holiness encountered. Holiness encountered. Verses 6 to 9. Let me read these verses for us once more, starting in verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. Now they called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, our God, you answer them. Uh, you, have, you are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Uh, one of my favorite hymns of all time is Great is Thy Faithfulness. I probably should have sung it today, but oh well. Great is Thy Faithfulness. Here's, here's a portion of the hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Church family, the reason that we can cling to God's promises with every fiber of our being is because he is utterly faithful. He is utterly faithful. Who he has been, he will forever be. He does not change. And because of his holiness, he has no need to change. So when he says, for example, that he will be with us to the end of the age, you could take that to the bank. 
In verses 6 to 8, I want to draw our attention to the faithfulness of God. Uh, God's holiness, in part, is seen in his faithfulness. Uh, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they were all mediators between God and Israel. Uh, One of their primary responsibilities was to call on the name of the Lord. That should sound familiar. That's prayer. The psalmist is highlighting these men as examples of those whose primary purpose was to petition the Lord on behalf of his people. They, they called on his name, and the Lord answered. Not because they were somehow perfect or had it all together. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read those accounts, they were not perfect, and they did not have it all together. But instead, because God is faithful. You know, the the most common, I would say, way that we encounter the Lord's faithfulness is by watching him answer our prayers. They called, and he answered. And the same goes for us today. We call, and he answers. Friends, prayer, by its very nature, is a posture of dependence. Uh, Woven in the fabric of prayer is the thread of humility. The very act itself is an acknowledgement that we are finite and that God is infinite. That we have a weakness and an ability and frailty and that God is strong and able and mighty. So for the psalmist to help us understand God's holiness by, by pivoting to this theme of prayer, it actually makes total sense. Out of our neediness, we call out and out of his faithfulness, our God answers. Uh, Friends, we pray to God because he alone is holy. He alone is perfect. And out of his holiness, he faithfully answers. A holy God answers. Y'all, this should blow our minds. A holy God answers. He answers the, the prayers of the depraved. He answers the prayers of sinful people. If we're honest, what we, what we should know, what we should understand is there is that our rebellion should cause our prayers to land on deaf ears. That's what should happen. But instead, a holy God answers by his grace and on the merit of another. He hears, he speaks, and he loves. Friends, the moment that we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, We move from enemy to friend. And like any good friend, God listens. God hears our prayers. Uh, We're given the ability to pray according to his will as he's revealed to us in his word, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Church family, praise God that in Christ we have the ear of the Almighty. Do you struggle with prayer? Friend, let that be motivation enough to pray without ceasing. Meditate on this glorious truth this week. The Holy One hears you. And let me add, it's a new year, which means you have 16 new opportunities to pray with your church family during our evening prayer service. Uh, Beginning next Sunday, as Pastor Dave mentioned in the announcements, January 8th at 5.30 p.m. You know, everybody's into making resolutions this time of year. 
a member of Oakhurst Baptist Church, how about you resolve to come pray with your church family to the, to the God who hears the prayers of the righteous? Friends, he hears. But not only does he hear, he answers. He speaks. Uh, the fact that God speaks, it's one of the many attributes that set him apart from the false gods, the, the mute gods. Verse 7 gives us an example. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. This is a reference uh, to Moses at the tent of meeting. So this is Exodus 33, verses 9 and 11, which I'll read for us. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Our God hears. Our God speaks. But he also loves. And sometimes love looks like discipline. Sometimes love looks like discipline. Verse 8, O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. As uh, parents of a five- and a three-year-old boys, uh, Chelsea and I have learned that loving our boys is a constant balance of extending discipline, but also, uh, excuse me, extending forgiveness, but also implementing discipline, right? Extending forgiveness and in implementing discipline. And admittedly, we don't always get that balance uh, right, uh, but our boys need both to be loved well. They need to know the experience of having someone uh, absorb their offenses. Uh, but they also need to have the experience of someone bearing the consequences of their sins. So they can learn what obedience looks like. Both forgiveness and discipline are forms of love. Uh, and friends, this is in part how God loved Israel. And this is in part how God loves us. Again, verse 8, you were a forgiving God to them, them being Israel, and yet an avenger of their wrongdoings, or in other translations, punished their misdeeds. In other words, discipline. The Lord uh, disciplined those he loves. Forgiveness and discipline. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 has been called the riddle of the Old Testament. It's one of the many paradoxes that we find throughout Scripture. And in this passage, we have another instance where the Lord spoke in a cloud. He passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, a slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, this passage begs the question, how can God forgive sin, uh, but at the same time by no means clear the guilty? You know, it doesn't take much reading of the Old Testament to know that Israel was a mess. In one moment, they were loving and, and worshiping God. And in the next moment, they're running headlong into their sin. 
They were constantly in a cycle of, of falling into sin. Uh, the Lord judging them for their sin. And then the Lord forgiving and delivering them out of their sin. In church family, in so many ways, we are the same way. We proclaim our love for God. We fall into sin. And out of his abundant faithfulness and mercy, the Lord forgives and he delivers. But the question still stands. How can God forgive sin and at the same time by no means clear the guilty? Well, we find an answer in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, the Lord's faithfulness is most supremely on display in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows. This is how Yahweh can forgive sin and at the same time by no means clear the guilty because our sin has been placed on Jesus. Upon our profession of repentance and faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes on every one of our sins, past, present, and future. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness, his holiness. Friends, on the cross, Christ, uh, the innocent one, is treated like the guilty one so that we, the guilty ones, can be treated like the innocent ones. Praise God for his mercy and grace in Christ. Friends, the Lord hears, the Lord speaks, and the Lord loves in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. At the cross, we find forgiveness. Church family, we serve a faithful God, and his great faithfulness is rooted in his holiness, which should lead us to respond in praise and exaltation. Praise and exaltation. Look at verse 3. If you were tracking closely, you notice I skipped some things. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. As I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this psalm is both a cause for praise and a call to praise. Verse 3, 5, and 9 are the call, the call, the call to exhortation, the exhortation, excuse me, to exaltation of our God and King. This is a call, a, an exhortation to the exaltation of our God and King. Praise God. Praise God. We use that all the time. Praise God. When we say it, what do we mean? What do we mean? Well, in short, it means to give thanks and honor to his name, the one who is worthy of all praise. Uh, you could say uh, that praise uh, begins with recognition and it ends with response. 
Uh, We gather Sunday after Sunday to praise God for what he has done in Christ. Our gathering is, is in its very essence a response to our Holy Spirit revealed recognition, uh, both individually and corporately, that Jesus indeed is alive and ruling and reigning over sin and death, and that he's coming back to judge the world. We praise him in this assembly by the reading of his word, the praying of his word, the singing of his word, and the submitting ourselves to the preached word as we're doing right now. We recognize and respond We give thanks and we honor him in the gathering of the Oakhurst Baptist Church. But y'all, this is one day out of a seven-day week. The other six were scattered uh, throughout the city. Yet the command to praise the Lord in Psalm 99 remains the same. So, he is praised, friends, as we daily give ourselves to the reading of his word, the studying of his word, the meditating on scripture. He is praised in our evangelism, as we proclaim his name to the lost. He is praised in our discipleship, as we seek to do spiritual good to one another, uh, looking out for one another spiritually. Uh, He's praised in our sanctification, as we help each other fight sin and grow in the spiritual disciplines, not turning a blind eye, but, but pressing into one another's lives and striving towards holiness together. He is praised as we show hospitality and welcome one another into our homes with kindness. Friends, the Lord is praised with all of our lives as we live in accordance to his word, both individually and corporately. Uh, Consider with me the posture of praise in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God, the text tells us. In other words, lift his name high. Make much of God, and yet, at the same time, worship at his footstool. That's, that's an interesting dichotomy there. Lift his name high, uh, but worship at his footstool. Uh, what is a footstool? It's where you place your feet. Uh, it's low to the ground is the essence is what we need to take away there. To worship at his footstool, it requires you to physically bow down. Uh, these two actions, exaltation and worshiping or bowing at the footstool, they, they kind of complement one another. Uh, the physical act of, of bowing uh, raises that which you are bowing to higher than ourselves. Uh, this verse is calling us to exalt in the Lord by humbling ourselves, humble ourselves, seeing ourselves rightly in light of his holiness. And this begins and continues by the regular reading and studying of the living word of God. Friends, it's in the word that we get the most accurate picture of our sin, and therefore we get the most accurate picture of our Savior. It's, it's, it's right that as we approach God's word that we feel a sense of, of fragility and, and, and finiteness as we see the majesty of God in the scriptures. Friends, if we, if we are to humble ourselves, we must be regularly giving ourselves to God's word. Because by our very nature, we are programmed for pride. We are programmed for pride. Pride, on the other hand, it does the inverse of Psalm 99. Pride causes us to exalt ourselves, and in doing so, we lower the Lord, Uh, which is exactly why 
James tells us in the book of James, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, pride is a returning back to the rebellion in the garden, a usurping of the throne of God. And friends, God will not put up with that. He will not put up with that. He will not give his glory to another, and that includes us. Church family, we must put God in his proper place, high and lifted up. The last call to worship is in verse 9. Again, the psalmist calls for exaltation and to worship or bow down, but this time it's at his holy mountain. In addition to being the earthly city of Jerusalem from which God ruled the nations, Mount Zion, or the holy mountain as referred to here, also refers to God's eternal reign in heaven. Both places are holy because the God who inhabits them is holy. So this call to worship, it's an invitation, an invitation to come into the presence of the holy God and bring him the worship that is due his name. But how? How are we, a sinful people, a rebellious, finite people, able to enter into the presence of this mighty and infinite and holy God, uh, the one who reigns in greatness, justice, and faithfulness? Well, friends, the bad news is left to ourselves, we can't. We can't. Left in our sin, uh, this is an invitation that we literally are unable to accept. Why is that? Well, God's word tells us that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. And friends, the king does not dine with the dead, but only the living. The king does not invite rebels into his presence, but only rebels made righteous. Those who have seen their desperate need of forgiveness of sins. Those who have confessed their need for a savior and turned in repentance and faith. Those who have been washed by the blood of the innocent one, the holy one. The lamb of God for sinners slain. Holy is he. Our wickedness for his righteousness. Holy is he. In our place, condemned he stood. Holy is he, repeated three times in this psalm, is the exclamation, holy is he, because we are not. And so, if you are here this morning and you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation, for you, God's holiness is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. Friend, his holiness obligates him to destroy you. Friends, that's the bad news. But I also have good news for you. God is not only holy, but he's also merciful. He is also gracious. He is slow to anger. Friend, he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He sent Jesus to earth to live the holy life that you can't and to die the death that you deserve to die for your sins. And then 
physically, he was buried in a tomb. But three days later, praise God, he rose from that tomb and in so doing defeated sin and death, proving that he indeed is the Holy One, the long-awaited Messiah. So now anyone, and I really do mean anyone, anyone who turns from their sins in repentance and puts their faith, their trust for salvation in Jesus Christ will now receive his holiness. Friend, that means that if you trust in Jesus, when God the Father looks at you, he no longer counts your sins against you. Uh, Instead, your sins are placed on Christ at the cross. And in exchange, here's the the amazing news. In exchange, you receive his righteousness. You receive his holiness. So friend, trust in Christ today and be made holy. If you'd like to know more about what it looks like to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, you can come talk to me or one of the other pastors after the service or, or maybe even a member of the church who brought you here today. Uh, Maybe 2023 will be the year uh, that you submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus and enter into the family of God. But for the Christian, to my Christian family, to my church family, let us respond the way Psalm 99 calls us to. Exalt the name of Jesus. Worship at his holy mountain. Rejoice in this truth that God in his grace has done everything necessary to secure our salvation. Therefore, we have no choice but to worship him with every fiber of our being, in our going and in our coming, in our waking up and in our lying down. Our God is worthy to be praised. Beloved, it is his holiness. It is the holiness of the Lord that sets him apart, Uh, but the faithfulness of the Lord draws him near. Let's pray.